0: Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Drazer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. If you're a returning listener, if this is your first time listening to the show, thanks for finding us. I hope you enjoy the conversation uh, and many other conversations like it, both on this podcast and generally on Counterpunch. I think that Counterpunch is a platform that we really need today. Um, you know, every week I kind of sift through all of this junk that we call news about Trump and all of these other things going on, and increasingly I find myself self-limited to just a handful of uh, websites and other media platforms that I feel that I can really trust for the kind of analysis that's needed, analysis that doesn't really fall along strictly partisan lines and analysis focused on things like class and uh, things like uh, uh, economic issues, political issues, uh, climate change, all of the key uh, issues of our day that are highlighted each and every day on Counterpunch that I think provides not only coverage of those issues, but in-depth coverage from a critical perspective on the left. Counterpunch, to me, is an incredibly valuable resource. I'm obviously proud to be associated with it, but also happy to be able to bring this show and to encourage people to subscribe to the magazine, a great publication, a great way to support Counterpunch, and also to be regularly uh, visiting the website, and if you feel inclined to do so, making a donation to Counterpunch. Of course, it's tax-deductible, but also it's it's a way to support independent media. Media, truly independent media. Uh, so pick up the phone, call Becky in the Counterpunch office, go on the website, use the PayPal or whatever the other features that are available to do so, or just get yourself a subscription. Also really great. Um, so with that in mind, I do want to turn to my guest today. Uh, Edna Bonhomme is on the program. She is a postdoctoral fellow and an activist. She is really someone uh, worth following, worth paying attention to, because she does so much work in so many different areas, not only political work and activism and analysis, but also research, academic research on a variety of subjects, including the history of disease, including many other very fascinating subjects that are relevant, not only in, uh, you know, the so-called global north or in the first world, but certainly relevant to the so-called global south or the third world and providing that kind of an analysis, I really highly, highly value. Um, you can follow her on Twitter at Edna Bonhomme. That's E D N A dot B O N H O M M E. Edna Bonhomme, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the show and um, its political initiatives.
0: Thank you so much. Now, I wanted to get you on the program to talk about, well, maybe a variety of subjects, but uh, specifically uh, an area that I think is increasingly uh, not only relevant to everything that's going on in the news and in the headlines, but also relevant for understanding the history, the recent history that we have lived through. And that country is Tunisia. Tunisia, of course, having been a flashpoint in the Arab Spring, uh, a, a critical country for understanding the entire Middle East, North Africa region. So we're going to focus on Tunisia and a lot of different aspects of, uh, well, the the story around the country. But before we do that, Edna, can you just give us a little bit of a, a, a taste of your background, what work you've done, what has attracted you to working in Tunisia and in North Africa and with the subjects that you have?
1: So, um to give you a background about um, myself and my research and my motivation for activism, I guess it, it really started in the um, two thousand and three uh, when the United States invaded uh, Iraq. Um, and uh, for me, it was particularly relevant to understand the history of the Middle East um, and also the history of u s. imperialism more broadly um, by actually Uh, learning or starting to learn the language um, by reading about uh, leftist and socialist movements um, so that I could actually be in solidarity, not just in terms of rhetoric, but but actually with respect to um, uh, traveling to the region, connecting to uh, anti-war struggles, um, and really um, uh, seeing people uh, from the region who've been fighting for uh, their their lives ostensibly um, as as comrades as as collaborators, as intellectual uh, thinking subjects, as workers um, who've been able to resist historically. Um, and so when um, in 2003 uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq, um, many people that I know uh, radicalized around that um, by, by involving themselves in different kinds of uh, uh, social uh, projects um, and, and in that respect uh, also uh, figuring out a way to uh, overturn that uh, through uh, a, a global kind of uh, anti-war movement.
0: Indeed. And certainly I I, I fall into the category of people who were radicalized around uh, struggling against the Iraq war. I was in uh, college at the time and it was a a big deal. And it certainly brought me into sort of uh, contemporary political struggle and also in uh, helping me to round out my understanding of the world. And it introduced me to a lot of left academic work, a lot of left activism and and all of that stuff that I've been doing ever since. So I'm certainly in that camp as well. And I think a lot of people, uh, so-called uh, millennials or early millennials or whatever would fall into that into that group. Now, uh, specifically with regard to Tunisia, what was your introduction to Tunisia? Did you visit there at that time? Did you visit only later? How did you get, uh, you know, introduced to that country, its culture, its politics, and so forth?
1: So my introduction to Tunisia came in multiple routes. Um, one of them happened to be uh, somewhat personal insofar that my parents, coming from uh, Haiti, a uh, uh, former French colony, or at the time it was Saint-Domingue, um, very much uh, uh, have, have had to deal with the legacies or the aftermath of French colonialism in a similar way that Tunisia, Algeria, um, and other uh, uh, countries have had to deal with French Uh, imperialism and in my travels specifically to to France to what would have been considered the metropole um, I was able to directly meet Tunisians who because of the post-colonial situation because of austerity um, uh, had to travel to France uh, to be able to work Um, and there was a way in which um, and particularly in Paris uh, French Algerians West Africans um, Vietnamese people uh, who have uh, had to work as guest workers in in, in France um, have had uh, various forms of solidarity mostly because of their social exclusion the income inequality and also just the housing uh, kind of uh, displacement um, in many of them being placed in Baleuse, uh in the outer suburbs of, of, of Paris um, dovetailed with that though um, the, the the way in which Tunisia became as uh, interesting for me politically um, is its uh, kind of historical trajectory in which, um, uh, on the one hand, it was able to have its independence in 1956 um, and overcome a slew of um, uh, kind of highly militarized uh, violent um, uh, um, issues from the top. Um, and at the same time, uh, there was a certain kind of, uh, of political and social freedom that was warranted and granted in Tunisia that wasn't necessarily always the case in some of the surrounding countries. and so. On the one hand, there was this exceptionalism politically, socially, um, but then, on the other hand, um, there there's also uh, a way in which this country, um, uh, for me, uh, produced a, a range of, of, of close ties and personal friends. Um, I started looking at Tunisia or studying Tunisia before um, I traveled, so the first time. I went, uh, was actually in, in 2013, so it wasn't um, uh, that long ago. Um, however, it was uh, an opportunity uh, upon um, arrival to be able to see, I was able to go to the interior, so towns like Gebes, um and Gasrin where uh, there was high, m- massive unemployment, but then also coastal towns like uh, Tunis, of course, as the facts uh, where there was industrialization and seeing the differences between uh, the the kind of interior where um, people like Mohamed Wazizi, who um, uh, is uh, famous for self imulating himself on 17 December 2010, um, it, I could finally understand um, how uh, people from uh, the the interior were uh, felt um, dispossessed. Um, high massive unemployment etc um, and 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 being able to navigate uh, throughout the different social and economic classes uh, as people were thinking uh, about uh, their future and, and and what kinds of political processes they wanted um, also felt very live and fresh uh, when I when I arrived um, in, in 2013
0: Indeed. Now, uh, I want to get into a couple of different subjects, including kind of bringing us up to speed on everything that's happened in Tunisia since uh, the Arab Spring. But uh, since you kind of already touched on it, can you just give us a little bit of uh, an understanding of what is the economic situation like? What is the situation for ordinary Tunisians uh, today? And is it different from what uh, happened leading up to the unrest that became known as the Arab Spring?
1: So the unrest that um, began in 2010 Um, was very much a a political question, but also an economic question. So people were very much protesting uh, unemployment, um, food, inflation, uh, the the question around censorship for political speech or freedom of speech, um, as well as uh, food inflation. And so everyday living uh, had become ever more difficult, um, but also just the the kind of dehumanization that uh, that people felt um, under... Uh, the former regime um, under uh Zine El uh, Abidine uh, Ben Ali um, and On the surface of it, the the kind of uh, uh, success or initial success was that he was ousted, and that helped to, as many people know, uh, spark a kind of uh, uprising from below and in um, some of the surrounding countries, uh, Egypt um, being one of them. And in cases where uh, there weren't uprisings, concessions were made uh, by uh, uh, rulers, for example, in Jordan, so as to suppress it. And then, of course, we know some of the most... um, uh, Tense uh, kind of responses have been in places like Syria and, and, and Yemen, um, but given that uh, the the actual kind of protests um, from the time of Sidi Bou said to the ousting of uh, Ben Ali took about uh, three weeks, uh, so not not that long, um, less than a month, and and that helped to um, lay out. a a host of um, responses, some of which um, being uh, kind of a political reconfiguration uh, insofar that uh, you have a a kind of attempt to think about shifting the parliamentary um, uh, space. Another kind of response was uh, uh, having a new constitution, which uh, w- in 2013 was uh, the the kind of process by which the parliament was able to uh, organize. But then there was also an attempt, um, which op- gets a little bit less attention, um, to challenge um, uh, multinational corporations um, to challenge unemployment uh, consistently, um, and and all of that has come with a host of uh, um, tensions, uh, whether it's uh, On the one hand, uh, leftist groups and parties uh, trying to have more legitimacy and build a base. On the other hand, um, neoliberal parties who, and particularly um, in Akhda, which is one of the uh, major Islamic parties, um, trying to uh, bring in a certain kind of business and not necessarily addressing the economic question. Uh, given that, um, there have been protests against environmental pollution in places like Gebes, where earlier this year thousands demonstrated against environmental pollution of um, the Tunisian chemical group. Um, in addition to that, in early um, January of 2018, uh, about um, there were protests. Uh, throughout uh, the country, leading to um, the, um, uh, the arrest of, of many people. And mo- their demands were quite simple, um, including um, just uh, reducing the price of food um, and um, and to prevent the privatization of state entities like Social Security and to, to provide adequate housing. And so um, these protests have also... Um, um, been met with resistance from uh, groups such as the International Monetary Fund uh, which has um, been granting the country these uh, loans like uh, two thousand nine point billion dollars in uh, loans in 2015 but yet um, at the same time uh, there hasn't actually been um, the opportunity for uh, uh, adequate um, uh, you know life and, and situation for most most Tunisians what has been great about the resistance is that the the Union of General Tunisian du Travail, or UJTT, has um, been a premier um, syndicalist uh, trade union force uh, to actually provide a kind of uh, resistance independent of uh, some of the political parties, but in solidarity with workers who uh, want uh, to uh, resist uh, the neoliberal projects.
0: It's very interesting, and uh, hopefully, uh, in the second half of our conversation, we can delve a little bit more in depth on some of these economic questions, including the question that you just touched on—neoliberalism—and how that really uh, is figure centrally in everything regarding Tunisia's economic life. But um, before we can get to that, I want to focus a little bit on the military. You wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago. This would have been in uh, early May, I believe, May tenth, uh, entitled "What's Behind Tunisia's Growing Military." thought it was an excellent piece that really kind of revealed a number of aspects to this story that I wasn't aware of. And I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on Tunisia, but I do follow the region. And uh, I, I think it would be helpful to understand not only what's happening now, but what role Tunisia's military really played in 2010, 2011, moving forward. So I guess the first part of the question is, tell us about the role that the military played uh, during that Arab Spring period, during the uprising, and uh, the, the significant Significance of that and then the second part of that is maybe you could start to tell us a little bit about the military's evolution since then
1: okay so the Tunisian military has a very complicated history Um, Under Habib Bourguiba, originally, the military um, had less of a kind of political role um, uh, than it it does today, as Um, well as— Edna, um, I'm
0: sorry. I just want to just clarify for listeners, the name you just mentioned, is that the first leader uh, post-independence?
1: Yes. So Habib Bourguiva, um was the first um, uh, president uh, after the 1956 uh, independence from uh, its protectorate status um, from France. And he was a leader until the late 80s before um, uh, Ben Ali uh, took power, which actually he took power through a military coup because uh, he was in the military um, uh, a kind of leadership. So... Uh, Yes, under the first uh, president, Habib Bourguiba, uh, the Tunisian military had less of a political role and was purposely um, kind of left to not have the same kind of funding, for example, in comparison to Egypt, where um, estimates of the Egyptian uh, military, even up to today, is such that they own about uh, 50% of, of, of land, the um, highly controlled, uh, controlling um, passageways, et cetera, and, and people's ability to protest, etc. cetera. Uh, so historically, Tunisia's uh, military had less of a role. However, the police um, very much uh, on an everyday basis uh, did have a kind of um, uh, jurisdiction over where people could go, particularly if street vendors um, uh, were able to sell goods. Um, um, and in many ways, pr- were part of the kind of private uh, police uh, force uh, of the the, the the previous regimes. Um, given that, um, one of the things that is particularly um, telling of what how the Tunisian military has changed is, specifically with military funding. So for example, in two thousand eight, um, they were spending about, $472 uh, million U.S. dollars. And it, um, by 2014, it was uh, $781 um, million. Dollars. And then by uh, 2016, nine hundred eighty seven So almost uh, a billion dollars uh, being given and siphoned to the, the Tunisian mil- military by 2016. And, and, and looking at these numbers is important because it goes to show... Well, first of all, it's like millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And if, if that if it is the case that people are, are literally fighting for bread and freedom, um, some of that money, uh, if not all of it, could be spent uh, towards housing, education, the things that um, people have been consistently um, um, fighting for um, before and after um, the uh, 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 Arab uprisings. Um, in addition to that, uh, one of the things that the, the Tunisian military has been charged uh, with doing is um, to allegedly protect uh, the border between Libya and itself, um, mostly uh, in response to two things. One of them being um, some uh, uh, jihadist groups uh, that have been uh, on the uh, involved in. Uh, um, uh, Protecting or um, being involved in um, uh, uprisings in Libya, but as well as the migration question. So, um, securing the border uh, to prevent the siphoning of migration. So, the, the Tunisian military has had uh, two major roles the counterterrorism vis a vis its allegiances to um, uh, UN, NATO powers, but then also in the context of migration, uh, specifically uh, those who were trying to get to Europe um, to uh, escape, you know, poverty from uh, North Africa, but also um, those coming from Sub-Saharan Africa as well. So the border militarization um, has been carried out um, and is being carried out uh, through uh, Tunisia at, at the moment.
0: Absolutely, and and one of the interesting things about this and really kind of the intersection between just talking about Tunisia and understanding the role that, uh, that that the West or, you know, the United States, the empire is playing in this, I think is really key. So tell us a little bit about how the United States and the UK and France and some of the other players in Europe, how are they uh, involved in this militarization process? I mean, is it purely a matter of throwing money at the Tunisians and having them uh, you know, try to stop the flow of migrants to the extent that they can. Or do you think that there's more to it than just that aspect?
1: So, um, the United States has had a military presence on the African continent um, for several centuries at this point, and that is not specific to Tunisia per se. Whether or not um, they want, or want, or wanted to. Secure you know, have a kind of uh, securitization of the borders. Um, but what's, I think, different is that um, prior to the Arab Spring, Tunisia was not a member of NATO. Um, however, um, in the recent years, it has become a non-voting member of NATO, which um, very much um, is, is connected to um, several things, like uh, increasing the loans um, and being a little closer to the US and Europe, Europe's sphere of influence. Um, as well as uh, the kind of um, military uh, intelligence training um, that is uh, directed towards uh, the Tunisian military um, and so a lot of this is associated um, with um, with the kind of war on terror or alleged war on terror um, but uh, part of it is also um, the migration question as, as as you indicated what the way in which that, that then relates to other countries is that, Um, There have been uh, uh, U.S. government-coordinated military training exercises in which um, uh, countries such as Britain, France, Germany um, are participating in. In fact, one of the um, ones that happened this year in 2018 was called Exercise African Lion in Morocco, and um, these exercises, the military operations, is how they train uh, forces um, to not only uh, uh, have a presence uh, in places like Tunisia, but even um, elsewhere. So, for example, uh, the German military, which um, and I, I mentioned German military because I'm currently based in Berlin, Germany, um, have plans to deploy more um, military forces in Iraq. And so the training that gets done, whether it's in North Africa or elsewhere, then gets used um, uh, uh, to expand uh, the kind of imperial projects in the Middle East. Um, often, and um, there's been a couple recent articles on this, and particularly with the German case, it it, it comes with the lens of um, potentially being anti um, uh, against the Islamic State or so-called Islamic State, um, and so that's how they can justify it. Or in some cases, um, the military uh, kind of relationships can just be economic, insofar that weaponry is being sold um, to places like Egypt and, and Saudi Arabia.
0: Indeed. And I think that one other aspect of this that's worth noting is the fact that the United States with its, uh, with this AFRICOM, Africa Command Initiative, attempts to maintain a presence to the extent that it can in every corner of Africa, every country of Africa. But of course, as, as people who have followed this uh, story know, most countries in Africa are not willing to allow direct military basing rights for the United States. And so one of the ways that the U.S. kind of insinuates its military leadership and tries to control through proxy relationships some of the military structures in these countries is through these things like cooperation and military exercises, military weaponry, uh, you know, uh, military advisors, so-called advisors that are embedded with high-ranking officials and so forth. So it's part of a continent-wide process, and I think Tunisia is a good, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, node in that network that the United States is operating
1: you're absolutely right that um, the way in which AFRICOM, um carries out many of its mission is just is to provide the combatant co- command power or personnel support or alleged personnel support, and they try to um, synchronize different groups um, and reserve a certain kind of uh, theater of contingency um, uh, joint forces, and so this is um, part of what the vision um, that they have, and and this isn't uh, specific to the African continent, given that the US Government has um, like eight hundred military bases all over the world, and and they've been able to, with the funding, um, one of yeah the largest army in the world, uh, military in the world, uh, to carry these things out.
0: Indeed, and and just the last point before we go to break, um, there is certainly something neo-colonial in all of this. I mean, uh, all of these. Countries which were the former colonial powers in Africa that are really now kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, I guess pun intended, scrambling for Africa to, you know, reestablish their footholds. You see this with the French in places like Mali and, uh, you know, some of their other former colonies in in, in Cameroon and elsewhere. You see it with the British in in some of their former colonies as well. And so there is kind of, uh, you know, this looming question about this, this, this whole initiative by European powers Around all of these various issues, migrants and so forth, as being neo colonial in nature. And I know that in the corporate press, it's really not, you know, sort of uncouth to use words like neo colonial and neo imperial, but that's really what we're talking about here.
1: Indeed, um, there is a way in which um, uh, the uh, interventions by European and North American powers. On the African continent are often tied to uh, formal colonial relationships and um, in the in the 19th century those relationships so the language would have been oh this is a civilizing pros- process or a civilizing mission um, and today um, often the language is to, to, to allegedly um, boost security or to fight alleged um, uh, terrorist, or um, in, in, in some cases, um, to just uh, say that somehow, because of their economic situ- situation, that that lends itself or warrants um, some kind of military occupation or funding. Uh, one of the things that um, it's important to, to, to also note is, is that, uh, that many of the, you know, I think people on the ground uh, who are often the target of these military campaigns, uh, uh are aware and they do resist um, and what that would what would it what it would mean to kind of uh counteract some of this is to actually develop uh, a kind of systematic anti war movement so that uh, those of us who disagree with the uh, militarization and um, joint efforts um, by western imperial powers uh could could be more in solidarity with the individuals who've been um, under the scrutiny of uh, of, of um uh, bombings and, and, uh, militarization by the West.
0: Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit more about the militarization process that's been ongoing and, and, and some of the motivations, some of the other motivations behind that. And then I also want to delve more deeply into this question of neoliberalism. What does that look like in Tunisia, uh, and and maybe generally in North Africa, and then also kind of relating what's gone on in Tunisia with some of the other countries in the region, because I think there are interesting parallels, but also interesting uh, differences. So uh, we'll touch on all of that with Ed the on the other side of the break you're listening to counterpunch radio we'll be right back
2: i'm here to let laugh it, love, love fuck fucking drink liquor it, and help the damn revolution come quick don't La- laugh love fucking drink liquor and help make a revolution i'm here to laugh it, love, love fucking drink liquor <laughs> And help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, and drink liquor. And maybe make a revolution. Now this ain't finna end in fist But if you got too go here, it up. Let's your job finna make you piss and cuffs. Make you have to hustle rent with your pistols up. Now if Uncle Sam Bomber's in his murder game, we gon' rise out the ash like that bird of flame. Hoping you take action from the word I bring. But if the police ask you never heard my name. Five years old, I live half-mass. Bedtime is 8 p.m. It's half past. Try to take me to bed, I make the mad dash. Scared in my sleep, I miss what half passed. Quarter century later. I'm still not sleeping. If I'm not involved, I feel I ain't breathing If I can't change the world, I ain't leaving Baby, that's the same reason you should call me to see you Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor And help the damn revolution come quicker Laugh, love, love fuck fuckin' drink liquor And help make a revolution I'm here to Laugh, love, love fuckin' drink liquor And help the damn revolution come quicker Laugh, laugh love, love fuckin' drink liquor and maybe make a revolution I'm finna take shots and make a mark Not just take shots and make us mark That's how they make us marks. We got dry to see the whole system break apart We finna drive to the lake and park Before we start Here's a club smelling like sweat, rum, and perfume She letting out whoops cause they playing her tune If we could, we would stay here till it turned noon Till the sky we exist and resume It's Millennium 3, we collar them it cup It's a world conversation, I'm hollering stuff Like we done wallow them up and squalorin' up Who's the culprit? Follow the buck I'm just following up Cause like me, you got to be in the middle Love it, unraveling the riddle of it And to do that you go ride on the powers of be Well I'm finna ride with you, take me home in a little bit fucking fucking drink, drink liquor And help the damn revolution oh, yeah, come quicker yeah, yeah. Laugh, laugh, love, love, fucking love drink yeah, liquor And help make a revolution uh-huh. to Laugh, love, love fuckin' drink liquor And help the damn revolution Ooh. come quicker Laugh, laugh fuckin' drink, drink liquor And maybe make a revolution right. I am not
1: just Fucking kids
0: And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Edna Bonhomme. I highly recommend you follow uh, her work. You can follow her on Twitter at edna.bonhomme. That's E-D-N-A dot B-O-N-H-O-M-M-E. You can also also find her work uh, in a number of different places and also on uh, her website. I don't have it in front of me for some reason. Edna, what's the website?
1: It's pretty simple, www.ednabonhomme.com.
0: Oh, great. Beautiful. I guess I should have known that. Thank you. Um, all right. Let's touch on a few other really important subjects. As I was kind of teasing before we went to break, I think that there are a number of aspects to this militarization question that need to be, uh, you know, addressed. And specifically, I think you've written about this quite well, The that the, the militarization really has two purposes, or maybe more than two purposes, but certainly uh, two primary purposes. You mentioned at least a little bit in the first half of our conversation about some of the regional and international issues, right, the militarization along the border with Libya in an attempt to prevent any, uh, you know, jihadi groups from flowing over the border and using Tunisia as a safe haven, but also this question of domestic repression, which we really haven't yet talked too much about. Can you tell us about how the military, which, again, is backed by the United States and the British and all of these other forces, how is it used as a tool of repression domestically of workers, of activists, of uh, these type of elements in society? So
1: one of the things that um, have been happening uh, over the past couple years is increased uh, demonstrations, um, whether it's by the unemployed. Um, so people who uh, are without work and are seeking work um, and who have been angry at uh, the price of the rise in um, taxes. And so, for example, in Tunisia in the fall, um, in, in also in during the winter uh, of two thousand seventeen and eighteen, um, various groups um, have uh, kind of challenged the the the, the rise in price um, prices and taxes, and and they took to the street as they were um, um, supposed to uh, do. And at the same time, uh, Tunisian security forces um, would, at, at, in many of these cases, arrest um, uh, uh, like. Hundreds of people. In fact, uh, there was one demonstration where they arrested 300 people in in January of, of this year. And often, the they um, they uh, do so or legitimize uh, arresting these in- individuals uh, through because because of they uh, uh, want to silence um, the, the the protests. Um, and at the same time, uh, I think one one of the things uh, that is uh, important to note is. Is, is how, not just in Tunisia, but in the US, um, police or military has been used um, to stifle uh, 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 protests, especially if um, they are considered to not have had a permit. So there's a way in which um, the, uh, the the right or the ability to have a, a kind of a, a free speech or movement or the collective mobilization isn't necessarily always seen as such um, by the state. Um, and figuring out ways um, by which people can still protest um, and 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 be able to collectively gather is, is still um, uh, still being uh, contested. At the same time, uh, I think one of the things that uh, uh, Tunisia offers that perhaps makes it difficult in some of the other surrounding countries uh, is that the power to protest the ability to do so is is much easier um, and and has more of ability than for example in in Egypt where um, anti- protest laws have made it so difficult to the point that leftists um, such as al Nour and Masri in, in Egypt and others um, have been in prison repeatedly or um, uh, or uh, are some of whom are still in prison uh, because of the, the uh, they've, they've wanted to organize I'll protest
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned Egypt. I think it's an interesting parallel that I'd like to touch on a little bit. Uh, you, in the first half of our conversation, you mentioned how uh, the militarization um, that that you've been talking about is not necessarily a, a, only a recent phenomenon, that rather that the military has increasingly gained a, a larger share of the national wealth, including ownership of real estate and, and and things of that nature. That's something that we also saw in Egypt over the course of a number of decades certainly under the Mubarak regime, which was also toppled during the Arab Spring. And so I wonder, um, I mean, is it is it as similar as it seems on the surface, or are there major uh, you know differences between the evolution of the military in Tunisia and the evolution of the military in Egypt? I mean, obviously, we've had military dictatorships in both countries, or at least dictatorships c- coming from the military ranks, um, but I'd like you to just explain for us a little bit, maybe Maybe some of the similarities and some of the differences.
1: So historically speaking, uh, there are three major uh, groups that were part of the anti-colonial resistance um, in Egypt in the 1950s. They were the um, uh, Communist, uh, the um, Muslim Brotherhood, and the Free Officers Movement. And the Free Officers Movement included what would eventually become Gamal Abdel Nasser, um, one of the uh, first... Uh, leaders of Egypt and what that set was a, a certain kind of tone whereby the military um, um, in Egypt, at least, uh, became a kind of uh, semi-autonomous um, group um, that adapted itself uh, to uh, ostensibly uh, have a certain kind of political role, but also an a, a entrepreneurial role within um, Egypt. And um, there's a really excellent book, Militarizing the Nation, the Army, Business, and Revolution by Zainab Abdul. Um, uh, which goes into this genealogy of the Egyptian military and how it was able to control and gain power. Um, at the same time, that uh, Egypt's positionality, specifically having the Suez Canal and um, the Sinai question, and, and 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 also the border regime between uh, Libya and 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 uh, Sudan, has also perpetuated its uh, kind of force and and power. Um, given that. Um, Part and parcel of why the repression in Egypt is is it's actually quite quite grave um, is b- because of the fact that it gets um, the second highest um, military funding in the Middle East um, after uh, Israel, and so it is no accident that the that the Egyptian state and the Egyptian military for that matter uh, can be able to maintain um, a kind of uh, control over the population uh, given the funding that's that's being given um, um, by by um, uh, the United States, etc. Um, but that, that dovetail with that, it, it, it comes from a history in which uh, they were able to be part of the anti-colonial struggle and then usurp that to suppress any op- um, most of its opposition.
0: Absolutely. And um, that kind of leads us into uh, another really important subject that I'd like to touch on um, because in many ways, the military um, in Tunisia and and as well in Egypt and elsewhere has been a vehicle for a process of neoliberalization. And uh, you've done some very excellent work on that subject, including an article I recommend uh, from earlier this year entitled The Evolution of Neoliberalism in Tunisia, 1980 to 2017. Can you walk us through uh, just some of the, you know, general, um, you know, uh, uh, conclusions that you reached in in your research, what the process of neoliberalization in Tunisia has looked like, and uh, obviously the role of international capital is central in that. But how has it impacted ordinary workers in that country?
1: So neoliberalism, um, as a concept, which uh, began in the seventies, very much. Um, uh, came to uh, places like the North Africa and the Middle East uh, by the 80s and early 90s. And it it required a different set of tools, um, one of which being the kind of liberalization of the economy, um, free trade, open markets, allegedly, but mostly for capital and the upper class. And dovetailed with austerity, and which which lent itself to the erosion of state facilities. And so, the the coupling between liberalization and austerity for many countries led to extensive debt and and a continuation of crisis um, that very much um, shifted. Uh, many of the the countries in the region, from places that had, for a good good time or um, after the um, anti-colonial period, provided basic needs to its citizens, or at least tried to provide um, uh, uh, you know free hospital care in some cases, uh, um, um, massive uh, kind of education reform so that there would be more access to uh, to public education, um, as well as um, in some cases modernization projects that. Uh, would eventually lead to um, the introduction of of, of of more electricity and more uh, housing for, for its citizens. However, by the late 80s, um, international financial institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, Uh, began to implant themselves in the region. So Sudan being one of the first places that they experimented with that in 1979 and then Morocco in 1983 and then Egypt and Tunisia by 1987. And so this, this meant that international um, capitalist hierarchy um, very much um, came into these regions in some cases to set up public private partnerships or PPPs um, and in some cases that meant um, uh, carrying out various structural adjustment programs. Um, so this this uh, this process of neoliberalism meant that private companies, um, at the behest of um, the the. Then dictators um, and rulers in places like Tunisia uh, could um, uh, in- encourage certain um, textile and garment groups to come in uh, without necessarily having things like workers' protection. Um, with time, um, the debt increased, um, leading to further and further economic um, uh, inequalities, uh, which, which in many cases led to a certain kind of precarious uh, situation. Um, you know, by the early 2000s, um, groups were, um, workers were organizing against this. So, for example, uh, workers at the Compagnie de phosphate de Gaspa, uh, went on strike in 2008. Um, and, and shortly after, um, uh, uh, they, uh, they, the company tried to fire uh, its uh, employees. Um, at the same time, those, those protests that were happening in the 2000s, um, were the ways in which people confronted neoliberalism directly because they very much had the power um, to stop their labor and to to really have a, a wide range of solidarity actions um, at the same time uh, despite the kind of uprisings in 2010 and 2000, um, 2010 and 2011 there's still been um, a kind of increased uh, neoliberal project insofar that they're still getting loans and they're still expected to pay off. Um, the, the state of Tunisia, that is, um, it's, uh, it's loan. So in 2017, the, the, um, they got, uh, the state of Tunisia got $2.7 billion in foreign loans, um, and is expected to, um, help cover its deficit. So in some cases they're getting loans to pay off their deficit and it creates this kind of cyclical effect where the state is always in debt. Um, Nevertheless, um, uh, there is a way in which uh, um, protests and people like the or groups like the um, UJTT, which is the the Tunisian General Trade Union, have uh, attempted uh, to challenge neoliberalism head on.
0: Now, one of the things that I wanted us to, to touch on as well is the conception. And, and maybe it's a, maybe it's a product of public relations and marketing, or maybe it's a misconception because of the media coverage or what have you. But, um, there is at least to some extent the perception that Tunisia is the success story of the Arab Spring, that Tunisia is, you know, the model to be, you know, to be emulated. Maybe one could say, you know, the positive example where Syria might be the negative example with all of the chaos that has uh, erupted there, uh, you know, in the civil war and so forth. So um, can you talk a little bit about Tunisia as a model of success and whether or not that actually translates to the reality on the ground for ordinary people? Because it seems to me that uh, what we're really talking about is what we're talking about all over the world, a concentration of wealth and the top, you know, in in the the ruling class and uh, the expansion and propagation and, uh, you know, of, of poverty and misery elsewhere. Is that true or... Or uh, is there maybe a little bit more nuance we could add to that conversation?
1: Uh, So the part of the issue is that in in general, like the... Uh, quality of life has not necessarily improved for a majority of Tunisians. A lot of that has um, is centered on things like unemployment, where youth unemployment is quite high. The official unemployment rates um, over the past several years have been 15 percent, uh, but that defini- the definition is often someone who is un- uh, does not have work but is still looking or currently seeking work. Um, so, if a person uh, after a couple of years has been looking for work but no longer has a job is they are they don't have a job they're unemployed but under those definitions uh they would not be considered uh unemployed and yet they are and so um the 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 numbers are underinflated um at the same time uh there's not really an attempt to provide long term uh, permanent, uh, job creation per se. Um, and if it does happen then it, or is, um, put forth is often through the private sector or through, uh, microcredits um, and, and, and things of that nature. Um, and so there, there is a crisis of sorts with, um, unemployment, which isn't unique to, uh, Tunisia per se, but is, um, something that has been quite, uh, 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 uh global. Um, in addition to that, um, like, and this is more of the, um, uh, uh, what we can think about in terms of the African continent as a whole is that, uh, 60% of the, of the, population is under the age of 25, which, which means that if you have this massive unemployment, uh, and lack of prospect that that actually, um, lends itself to, um, just dis- disillusionment, displacement, uh, and other, uh, social, social, social issues. Um, I think the fact that there is the increased militarization uh, does speak volumes to uh, the potential of authoritarianism to um, eventually get justified under the lens of of, uh, anti-terror or alleged anti-terror movements, and that there has been suppression uh, by police and the military against protesters uh, is also um, something to be wary of. Um, Nevertheless, um, the kind of... um, political processes um, that's been happening in parliament or even just the kind of um, resurgence of women's rights. For example, the ability for now uh, uh, Tunisian women who are mostly Muslim uh, can marry whoever they want is um, some of the smaller social gains that have been made. Uh, And so that um, these are these are. So on the one hand, the unemployment and material questions haven't fully been addressed, but there are some social issues like uh, specifically around women and uh, their ability to have a certain kind of marital freedom have um, had a more of an openness uh, than before.
0: Indeed. Uh, Now, one other thing that that I think we should probably talk about is that uh, that youth unemployment question that you mentioned, this is certainly general, generally uh, true throughout Africa. And in some places, like in places like South Africa, where it's particularly pronounced in Kenya and elsewhere, we are beginning to see an upsurge of uh, some radical left politics. I'm thinking specifically of like Julius Malema and the economic freedom fighters uh, in South Africa, which we talked about on this program a number of episodes ago and uh, some other some other uh, factions that are emerging in other corners of the continent can you tell us a little bit about uh, is that happening at all in Tunisia I mean you've mentioned the 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 trade union are there any other uh, ferments on the left uh, at the grassroots level that are emerging in response to this increased uh, economic privation
1: so um on the one hand, so I, I, I should probably point out what the youth unemployment rate is. So the national rate is about 15 percent. The youth unemployment rate is about 37 percent in Tunisia. Um, so that's that's quite a massive shift in terms of a huge section of the population um, experiencing that. Um, in some of the places, cities that have been hit by these high unemployment rate, particularly in the interior, like places like Kastrin, um, the unemployment, the, the, the kind of average unemployment rate is about 30%. And that's led to many people, you know, protesting on a regular basis and unemployment, uh, unemployed people have, have generally organized uh, around this. Uh, what, one of the, 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 the ways in which, uh, uh, the state or parliament at least has tried to address this, is that in December 2016, they approved a $14 billion budget for a new economic plan. The extent to which um, the uh, uh, lower class or, or the working class in particularly uh, were able to, to, to be involved and and, and have a, kind of an entry point into that um, is, is still has not been uh, fully realized, unfortunately. Um, I, the the um, union's do have the potential to organize, but again, sometimes it, it can be difficult um, with uh, uh, linking up with the unemployed. What would I I think would help with the movement is if there was a way in which, and similar to like the 1968 kind of movement, where unemployed people, students, and and, and those who have um, a, a, a job, whether unionized or not, are able to kind of figure out um, collective actions so that um, there is a demand for more, more, more work for people that, that people have more control over the, the, the means of production, um, that, or maybe even occupying factories or, uh, or, um, uh, whether they're textile factories or, uh, phosphate, fa- um, spaces so that, um, there, there could be those actions to, to really, um, hit labor where it's at because otherwise, um. There could, you know, the unemployed, if there isn't kind a certain kind of political solidarity, could be uh, scabs when there are strikes, um, or the unemployed um, could then also be temporary labor that isn't contracted and is further exploited, Um, and and so the coordinated actions, the conversations that would actually allow the space um, for. Uh, challenging labor w- w- is going to require this kind of long-term strategy of of licking um, people who have formal jobs, long-term jobs, with those who 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 do not.
0: I guess the final question I want to ask you, as we're running out of time here, uh, has to do with solidarity. You mentioned the word a couple of times, and I think it's important to highlight, um, you know, the the importance of solidarity, particularly for those of us living in the, uh, you know, in, in the global North, those countries that are acting in a neo-colonial fashion in places like Tunisia and elsewhere. Um, how, in your in your view, how do people uh, in the West, in the global North? actually stand in solidarity? I mean, other than just making statements and, and, and pronouncements, is there is there anything that, that you could suggest for people who want to not only learn more, but become active in actually building solidarity networks in places like Tunisia? Is there any recommendation you could give those listeners?
1: Um, so I would say um, the first thing is to educate ourselves about the region as much as we can. And, and, and educating ourselves about the history of the, the, the people and the left and the, the social movements that have been put into place. Like I'm currently reading The Impossible Revolution about uh, the Syrian tragedy by Yassine Al-Haj Saleh, which uh, talks a little bit about um, Syria over the past 20 years. And then Adam Hane's uh, Lineage Revolt is quite excellent in also doing that work. Uh, learning about that that history and the, the, the aftermath of, of colonialism is, is one of the first key steps that... Most of us uh, can and can help to or begin to uh, be in solidarity with the region. Another is just um, for those of us who are based in um, uh, kind of Western European, uh, North American context or even elsewhere to demand, um, especially for those who've um, have faced war and occupation to demand that we open the borders uh, to refugees and migrants and not just opening the borders, but ensuring that people are given housing, um, employment, and that they are not facing any uh, uh, discrimination, uh, especially by the far right. Uh, Another thing is to figure out actual campaigns that target military companies and and groups that um, uh, very much carry out the occupation, whether it's uh, in the European context where I live Frontex uh, which has been uh, uh, the group uh, involved in militarizing the the European borders um, uh, that that is um, that in itself and um, having boycotts that, that target those groups and companies is, is gonna be key um, and I think that and the finally too is just like listening to and honoring and um, kind of Uh, connecting with uh, socialists and activists from the Middle East and and North Africa and and hearing to see what they want. What what do they demand? How do they, how can we um, uh, uh, help them so that we don't reproduce uh, neoliberal or neocolonial relationships? Um, Because uh, so often uh, they have uh, so many challenges that they're facing on an everyday basis, depending on the country, And I think it's important to really try to uh, honor what they have to say and how we can, um, especially given that uh, many of the Western nations profit from their suffering, um, that how can we um, help them uh, through their campaigns
0: that's very well said. Thank you for that. Um, I guess we'll have to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Edna Bonhomme, uh, postdoctoral fellow and activist. Follow her on Twitter at Edna.Bonhomme. Um, also the website EdnaBonhomme.com. Um, again, I would I, I recommend Edna's work in a political context, but also a lot of interesting stuff that you can find on her website, including some of her artwork, some of her film projects, collaborative projects, and so forth. She's uh, she, she's putting out a lot of great stuff, so I highly recommend recommend it. Edna, thanks so much for coming on the show and helping us to learn more about Tunisia and about that region. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. (laughs)
0: Listeners, thank you as always, and I will check you again next week.